friends real friends? Have you ever asked that question of yourself? You look and realize, gee, I've got 500 friends or 1,000 friends on Facebook, but today I feel so lonely and I feel so alone and so isolated. Are Facebook friends real friends? Well, that was uh, the question that an appeals court in Florida actually chose to answer. The issue arose because a judge was Facebook friends with an attorney assigned to a case that she was hearing. And the court ruled, and this is a quote from the court case, Facebook data mining and algorithms lead to people accepting friend requests from people they hardly know or who they are only acquainted with in professional circles. According to the court, Facebook friends are not necessarily your close friends. Now, tell us something we don't know, right? The court went on to note that the degree of intimacy among Facebook friends varies greatly, and the designation of friend on Facebook does not distinguish between a close friend and a distant acquaintance. The court went on to note this, and here's another quote. To be sure, some of a member's Facebook friends are undoubtedly friends in the classic sense of person for whom the member feels particular affection and loyalty. The point is, however, that many are not. An assumption that all Facebook friends rises to the level of a close relationship simply does not reflect the current nature of this type of electronic social networking. But when the issue arose in yet another court case, finally the Florida Supreme Court actually had to weigh in and also affirm the lower court's decision. So the judge at that case was not required to step down because she happened to be Facebook friends with one of the defense attorneys. Now, I would never have imagined that a court of law might need to wade in and issue a statement or render a decision about issues involving friendship and trying to define what is and is not a friend. That may surprise you as it does me. But ladies, regardless of what the courts say about friendship, we know what God's word says. Proverbs 17, 17 says this. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. A friend loves at all times. And you know what all times means? All times. All times means happy times and sad times. It means good times and bad times. And we've all had perhaps both of those, even during the last week or the last month or certainly the last year. It means difficult times and challenging times and hard times. And in David's case, it means those times when your son tries to take away your kingdom, when close advisors betray you, and when you have to run and flee for your very life. We may have not been in those kinds of hard times, but we've faced other hard times in our lives. This week, we're going to look at how David's friends came forward and came through and they were there for him during an extremely challenging time in his life. We're going to unpack some specific actions taken as we celebrate the real, true friends that David had. And we also, I hope, challenge ourselves to think about friendship and to challenge ourselves to step up and to step up, step up and step out to be that same kind of friend to the people that we call friends in our lives today. I want to look first at a few verses from 2 Samuel 15 to sort of lay the groundwork for how we got here. We're calling this, uh, in my Bible kind of head, headlines this section, Absalom's Conspiracy. 
And we're combining lessons in 7-8 this week because of our Love Out Loud study last week and, and the tornado that shifted things. So I'm kind of covering some passages from both sections of Scripture that we've studied. But as you are able to stand, if you are able, would you stand with me in honor of God's Word as we look at this background to sort of lay the foundation for the events that are transpiring today. Ladies, I'm reading from 2 Samuel chapter 15, and I'm looking at verses 1 through 12. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper. But there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Ladies, thank you for standing in honor of God's word. You may be seated. You know, when you read that passage, and I'm sure you didn't miss all of my inflection, you see what a politician Absalom was. You see how calculating he was, how devious, how patient. Um, He plotted his revenge. He was very political and trying to win people over. He wove his web, and he took four years to do it. He nursed this hurt and this revenge and these thoughts for a long time. And even David's close advisor, Ahithophel, went over. Well, we we heard later, of course, we realized that he was the grandfather of Bathsheba, so he had his own little wound to nurse as well. David has faced enemies in many times past. We looked at a lot of struggles that he went through out in the wilderness when he was on the run from Saul, but this is different. This is different from all those other struggles he's had because this time... His own flesh and blood, his own son is plotting against him. You know, you and I, if we've lived on this planet more than a pair of minutes or a couple of weeks, 
We've seen some trouble in our lives. Individually and collectively, if we would make a list on the marker board and rattle off all the different trouble that we've endured, we would have financial trouble, and we would have medical trouble, and we might have job trouble. You name it, we've had different kinds of trouble. In the, in the last couple of weeks, some of us have had tornado trouble and rebuilding trouble, and just lots of difficult things. But surely, we would all agree that family trouble and relationship trouble is the worst kind of trouble to endure. It brings us such great pain to be at odds with those that we love. If you have a child that's been a prodigal, if you have a husband who's betrayed you, uh, those kinds of issues wound us, and they're hurtful, and they're painful. It's difficult. It brings no small degree of anguish. It brings on sleepless nights. So if you've experienced that kind of trouble, you know where David's coming from. So whether you're in trouble today or whether someone you love is in trouble, I think David and David's friends give us insight into this passage and how we can respond to love one another well in our time of trouble, in our great time of crisis. Let's pray as we begin to unpack this passage and, and talk about what it means to be that friend in a time of trouble. Lord God Almighty, we thank you that you are a good, faithful friend. We thank you, and we agree with those words that we sang this morning. What a friend we have in Jesus. Lord God, I just pray today as we talk about friendship that you would mess with us a little bit. Lord, that you give us some thoughts and ideas about how we can sort of realign our definition of friendship and how we can step up and be that kind of friend and also challenge us to consider the kind of friends that we are looking for. Lord, today would you fill our cup and then would you let us leave here as women of God who are sold out to you, ready to pour out what you have poured into us. All for your glory and all in your name. Amen. Well, before we begin to look at the actions of David's friends, <clears throat> let's look first at a couple of David's responses to Absalom's rebellion. He wastes no time, David does. He wastes no time wringing his hands or taking to his bed or sighing or lamenting or indulging in tears. When he gets that news in verse 14, uh, it, the verse 14 tells us that David says, Come, we must flee, we must leave immediately. He doesn't start calling in people or forming a committee and try to figure out what to do, he kicks into action mode. And look what he does. First of all, he's going to flee the city. You know, war is always bad, but surely civil war is the worst of all kinds of war because it, it comes home and it pits brother against brother, and in this case, tribe against tribe. It happens where you live. And so David's choice to leave the city is not only about protecting his own life, but about protecting the lives of others, and also about protecting the holy city of Jerusalem. His decision is selfless. He's not just thinking of himself. He wants to protect others. He wants to move the battle away from the city because he wants to spare as many civilian lives as possible. We also learn in verses 25 and 26 that he sent the ark back. He refused to see the ark as just his lucky charm to ensure God's presence. The ark was to dwell in Jerusalem. And even though David was leaving Jerusalem, he dictated that the ark would go back and it would live there. The, the third thing that I noticed from the passage was that David chose to be the last man out. It's interesting to note with the careful reading of verses 17 and 18 that David halted at the edge of the city. There's this long procession of people. He's leading everyone out. And then he gets to what must be the very edge of the city, maybe the last dwelling place there. 
And then the scripture notes for us, it, it includes that detail that all the men march on past David, and he chose to be the last one out. And I, I pondered that, and I wondered why would he do that? And perhaps it's just love and longing for the city, if he's looking back, maybe thinking about a little bit of regret and what he could have done differently as a dad, maybe thinking about the holy city and how much God had provided and, and how sad he was to leave it. Maybe he's wondering if he's going to come back and he just wants to take that mental picture and remember the city that he's leaving behind. Maybe he wants to take note of and be grateful as he watches all the people that are with him file on by. And he's maybe even praying for each one of those individuals as they go by, grateful for those that are coming with him and standing by him. We don't know for sure, but because that detail is there for us, it's interesting to ponder and think about. We see his great military strategy. He is wise and intentional about utilizing all the human resources that he has available to him. And as we unpack the rest of those scripture and, and saw how he engaged in that strategy to lay out the battle plan, we see that David was a wise military strategist. He used Hushai the archite, and he had this little spy network in place. He later, when they were to engage in battle, he divided the army into thirds. So he didn't rest and wait. He immediately kicked into action mode. And then lastly, but certainly not least, David was a man of prayer. David prayed. Action did not take the place of prayer in this man of God, and it shouldn't for us. Neither do we pray and wait for God to do the miracle. When we pray and God gives us a practical application, that may be the answer to the prayer that we're praying. David acted, and David prayed. David prayed, and David acted. Often those go together. I'm confident that David was praying without ceasing as he fled the city, as he looked back and left, as he made plans, as he interacted with all of his advisors. I'm sure he prayed many prayers that are not recorded for us here. Some of them are in the Psalms that surely must allude to what happened during this season in his life. But we have one specific prayer right that during this time that is recorded for us in 2 Samuel 15:31. Now, David had been told, it says, that Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And so then we see what David prayed. Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Wow. Don't you just love the practical, gritty realness of David's prayer? You know, often when we are betrayed by a friend, we talk to everybody else about what that friend did to us, but we don't talk to God. David took that hard news to the one that could actually do something about it. He said, Lord, turn his counsel into foolishness. Now, that's a, that's a bold prayer to pray. Have you ever prayed such a prayer? Lord, take this evil person and turn their counsel into foolishness. Prayer isn't just a frothy, feel-good activity that we engage in when all is well and life is good. We don't just have to come to God in prayer when we feel placid and peaceful and all is right with the world. Ladies, we can spread out that hard stuff before God. We can take that junk. We can go tattle on people that have betrayed us or done wicked things. We can be real with our great God. He is big and strong enough to take it. Lord, turn his counsel into foolishness, David prayed. Well, here are a few powerful passages that should spur us on to pray at all times and in all situations. 
we could have the whole lecture talking about even just one of these. So I'm not going to have time to do it, but I hope that you might jot down some of these references and look them up later and consider how the information in these verses might challenge you to woman up and get down on your knees, how they might transform your prayer life. James 5.13 tells us, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Tells us we should pray at all times. First John 5.14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, there's the prayer that never fails. Thy will be done. Ephesians 6.18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And then <clears throat> Philippians 4, 16, 4, 6, and 7, often my go-to verse when I'm praying with a friend or someone in trouble or going for a hospital visit, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's that trade-up verse. That's the powerful verse where we give God the junk and the worry and the anxiety, and in exchange, we get his peace. When you trade with God, ladies, you always trade up. Prayer is powerful. If I ask if you all believe that, everyone would raise their hand. Amen, sister. Yes, I believe that prayer is powerful. But then why, if we believe that, why don't we exercise it more often? We see the bumper stickers that say prayer changes things. Well, sometimes prayer changes things. Sometimes God's heart moves. But what I'm convinced of is this, that prayer always changes me. Whether God chooses to change my outward circumstances or not, prayer always changes me in the midst of that challenge. David prayed in the midst of his crisis, and you and I can do likewise. We must do likewise. So the first truth I want to hit on here is that the woman of God prays. It's time to woman up and get down on our knees. We must begin talking more to God about our problems than talking to others. I want to ask you, during the last week or the last month or the last year, have you asked someone to pray for you? Most likely every woman in this room can say yes. I have asked someone to pray for me. And so if the answer is yes, does it convict you as much as it does me to realize that I often spend more time sharing my prayer request, asking others to pray about my prayer request, than I actually spend praying my own prayer request? We need to spend at least as much time, more time, talking to God about our need than we spend sharing our need with other people. Let's start bringing that stuff before God. Before you ask anyone else to pray, you pray. Let's start responding, well, let's do it now when someone says, please pray for me. Let's start praying the gritty, hard stuff instead of just the safe, general, frothy, fluffy stuff. Let's ask God to get into our business. The woman of God prays. Well, now let's look at some of David's faithful friends. I identified seven different kinds of friends or groups of friends that were all there and showed up during David's hard time. Each of these seven situations or seven groups of people or individuals were used by God to bless, encourage, and help David. So we're going to kind of look at each one of these and summarize what they did. First of all, we see the Carathites, the Pelathites, the Gittites, and Idii was their leader. And the thing that I take away from this group of ites 
is their loyalty. You know, these guys are all foreigners. They're not Israel people. They're not part of the tribe of Israel. And, and furthermore, they had just shown up in Jerusalem the day before. They, they were refugees, leaving who knows what behind. Probably thought, we're finally here. Our journey is finally over. I'm so glad to be off this camel or take off these sandals and just rest for a little bit. They found safely safety. They had barely gotten unpacked, and now here they are the very next day, not even a, a, a week or two to, to rest and to catch up, and they're ready to take off again with David. And David, though, released them to go back. He spoke to the leader, Ittai, and he said, you're foreigners, you're exiles, you just got here yesterday. He said, this isn't your battle. You don't have to do this, just go back. I don't expect you to do this. And then he even released them with blessing. He said, may kindness and faithfulness be with you. You don't have to go with me. Go back. This isn't your fight. But you know what? They refused to leave. They chose to be loyal. They may have only arrived the day before, but these new crop of people, these Gentiles that aren't even part of Israel, are proving to be more loyal than many who had known David for years. Idiah responded to David. He said, as surely as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. That's from 2 Samuel 15, 21. I want to ask you, are you and I loyal friends? Are we going to be there when people need us no matter what, no matter how bad the timing? Are we going to choose to be loyal? We see this phrase about all the people, all the people, and from all the people, I think we see the ministry of presence. It says, the scripture tells us in verse 30 of chapter 15 in 2 Samuel, David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot, and all the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. You know, when, a, when we have a friend who's hurting or grieving with profound loss or, or devastation, Sometimes you and I struggle with what's the right thing to do or, or what can I say to make it better. Ladies, I want to tell you that sometimes the most sacred, holy, powerful thing that you can do, the most profound gift that you can offer in that time of hurt and crisis and pain is simply the gift of your presence. Romans 12:15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. A true friend is the friend who shows up. A true friend offers the gift of their presence. All the people, and that's a quote for what I find in the scripture, it says that all the people here in this passage, they were all in. They were fully present. There's no indication that they said anything or did anything. They were, they were just with David. They were walking with him. They were entering into his grief and mourning with him. They were fully present. There's no indication that they had pulled out their device and were checking their Instagram or their email while they were there either. I think maybe when we're going to practice the ministry of presence, we can just leave our phone in the car. We want to be all in and intentionally there as we walk with a friend in their time of grief. Have you practiced the ministry of presence? It's a sacred and holy privilege sometimes to just be there. That's the most powerful thing of all. Hushai, the archite. Archite, um, he was willing to die. First Chronicles 27:33 gives us a little more insight about this character that we hadn't heard about before. In that passage, he's described simply as the king's friend. He's called an archite, 
And in case you were wondering, that doesn't mean he's one of us. He's, he's not from Arkansas. He was a Gentile from the city of Arca, and my research says that that's a city in Syria, far away, one of the far-off places that as David expanded and solidified the borders of Israel and took control of all the promised land, that's one of those far-off regions that he conquered. And Hushai, like many people from those far-off places, as a result of, of David's presence, actually came to worship the true God and came to serve David as, as king of God's people. So the timing of Hushai's uh, arrival is noteworthy because David, if you look at the text, had just finished praying that God would turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness in verse 31, and then in verse 32, boom, there's Hushai. There he is. And so David realizes Hushai is the answer to my prayers. He asked him to do a hard thing. He asked him to be a double agent, to be willing to die. Hushai is being asked to go in and feign allegiance to Absalom and give advice that will frustrate Ahithophel's counsel. Hushai may very well, most likely did save David's life. He bought David some time because Absalom took his counsel over that of Ahithophel. And that extra time, that heads up, gave David time to escape and to get into place. As a side note here, um, I, you know, it feels awkward to see that lying could be used to bring about good. If that made you feel a little uncomfortable, that he was sort of practicing some deception as he went in there. We know that lying, of course, bearing false witness, violates one of the Ten Commandments, and so it's wrong. But there's also some biblical precedent for lying to be acceptable when its purpose is to save the life of another. A couple examples. Rahab lied to save the two spies in Joshua chapter 2 when Joshua sent the spies into the promised land. It was a selfless lie. She was lying to protect others. Over in Exodus 1, we saw that the Jewish midwives lied to protect the male babies from the Egyptians when Pharaoh had issued the edict that all the male babies were to be killed. So there is biblical precedence for lying when it's selfless and your focus is to save someone else, I think. Well, Hushai took a great risk in going into Absalom. He risked his own life to protect the real King David. And if he had been found out as a, as a double agent and as a spy for David, surely he would have been killed. You and I will most likely never be asked to do something that could lead to our physical death to be a, a good friend. But we might have an opportunity to die to ourselves to die to our plans to watch our favorite TV show that night. I might have a chance to, to die to watching what I want because a friend needs me to be there. I might have to die to my plans to go shopping because I need to visit a friend in the hospital. I might have to die to my plans to stay in my recliner and in my pajamas because I get that call to come in the middle of the night. I might have to die to my plans to go enjoy an afternoon matinee so I can show up for a funeral instead. Maybe... Um, there's some resources that you've been saving to treat yourself to a new couch or a new dress or a new pair of boots, and the Lord may prompt you to use that savings that you were setting aside for something else to bless someone who needs help. Hushai was the answer to David's prayer. I wonder, have you ever had the blessed joy of being the answer to someone's prayer? Have you allowed a thought that comes into your mind that you could do this and then just let it go and not acted on it? Allowed perhaps someone else to get your blessing? 
Do you ever consider that that thought, I should go here or I should do that, might be Holy Spirit inspired? God might be calling you up to bat to go and be used to bring, to be that instrument of blessing, to answer someone else's prayer. And guess what? When we decide to sit in the dugout and swing our legs and just sit there, he'll call somebody else to bat. And that person gets to hit the home run. And that person gets the blessing of being God's answer to prayer. I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss any blessing God has for me. When he calls me up, I want to run and grab that bat and swing hard, hard and round those bases. I don't want to miss any spiritual blessing that he has for me in Christ Jesus. Ladies, when we are willing to die to ourselves, we might get to be God's answer to, to someone else's prayer. Number four, <clears throat> Zadok and Abiathar and their sons Ahimaaz and Jonathan, they took some great risks as well. When David sent the ark back to Jerusalem, he sent the priests and their sons back with it. And he also asked them to keep their eyes and their ears open and to pass along any information that they should hear. His instructions to Zadok the priest are recorded in verses 27 and 28. He said to them, go back to the city in peace with your son Ahimaaz and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. You and Abiathar, take your two sons with you. And I will wait at the fords in the desert until word comes from you to inform me. Clearly, David trusted them completely because he told them his whereabouts. He told them exactly where he could be found, and then he sent them back to be in proximity to Absalom. If they had betrayed him, Absalom would have known immediately where to find him. So he trusted the priests implicitly. He asked them to take a great risk, just as he had asked Cushai to do. Their lives could also be in danger if they were found out, but they were trustworthy and they were loyal and they were willing to do whatever they could do to help their king. They went back to Jerusalem. And then sure enough, Hushai met them, and he conveyed the info to, to Zadok and Abiathar, who in turn passed it along to their sons, Iamaz and Jonathan. There was to be a servant girl involved in this intricate information highway. You see, there were no cell phones. There were no walkie-talkies. There was no way to communicate. But yet, look what God did as he set up this network of trustworthy people to relay the information to David. It, they, they relayed it all the way. There was this plan in place. But the worst thing could have happened, happened. Iamez and Jonathan were seen by someone who would betray them. And Absalom sent men to hunt them down. And then an unnamed man and woman joined David's team of friends to come in and help. And uh, we don't even know their names. They're a Behurim man and woman. And they are going to take quick action to help and assist. We don't even know their names, but these two, this couple, they were also loyal David's supporters and friends. Amaz and Jonathan arrive at their home just ahead of Absalom's men, and they climb down into a well. And the quick-thinking wife covers the opening and spreads grain on top. What a brilliant idea to sort of camouflage what was going on there. And so when Absalom's men arrive and ask about Amaz and Jonathan, she simply says, they crossed over the brook. What an, what an award-winning performance. She didn't get an Emmy, but she sure should have. She just gave the facts, didn't give any more information, and apparently they believed her. So their willingness to hide Amaz and Jonathan saved the lives of those two young men, protected David to get that information, and was crucial in to not only save David's life, but the lives of all of those that were with him. 
I wonder, as we think about this woman and her quick action, do you and I follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit to act quickly when we're given an opportunity to be a blessing to someone in need? Let's not hesitate. When the Holy Spirit says jump, let's just jump in and be that blessing as this woman was. David received the info, and he immediately acts on it. He and all, all of those with him, they set out, they crossed the Jordan, they got in place, and after he crossed the Jordan, he arrives in a place called Mananheim, and he is met there by Shobi, Makir, and Barziali. You know, I just say this stuff with confidence, lady. I try to look it up, and then I forget how to pronounce it. But there they are, and look what they do. They bring bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They brought wheat and barley and flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds and sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said, the people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. These three offered very practical help. They brought food and provisions. You see, we don't think about how difficult it would have been to travel in those days. Not only did they not have vehicles and, and power equipment to get there, there was no Walmart or McDonald's out there in the desert and in the wilderness. And you can't travel and you can't fight on an empty stomach. So their provision of resources must have had the people cheering and chowing down. What a blessing. Meeting physical needs is a timeless way to help. And it's what many of you do best. It's what many of you do well. When you show up with that casserole, take that pie, you hear that someone in is a bad way, the first thing many of you do is head straight for the kitchen. And this is a huge way to provide when someone is in need. And in the busyness of life today, I just want to tell you, in case you don't already know, it doesn't have to be homemade or made from scratch to be a blessing. I believe that sometimes the enemy robs us of the blessing of giving and our hurting friend of receiving the blessing when we listen to the lie, the lie that says, oh, you don't have time to bake a pie, and surely you couldn't just take one uh, a dessert that's not homemade over there. Whether it's a homemade casserole, a homemade pie, or homemade cookies, it will all eat. It doesn't matter. They're going to be grateful for it. If you show up with pizza in a cardboard box, they're going to be happy to have something to eat. Are there physical needs that you could meet today? And then, ladies, the last friend that we're going to come to is Joab. Joab. Now, we're skipping ahead now to 2 Samuel chapter 19 as we look at Joab and what he does for David. The coup is over. Absalom is dead. David is won. But it's really a hollow victory for David because the emotion that he failed to show for Absalom when he was alive all seems to pour out now. 2 Samuel 18.33 records his anguish. He's shaking and he's weeping. And we could just hear the emotion. There are exclamation points here. We're, don't overlook the, the profound, deep emotion and anguish that David is feeling. Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You know, anytime you lose a loved one, it's... There's mourning and there's grief. And in the, in the whole scheme of life, a mother or a father should never have to bury their child. So losing a child makes it doubly difficult. But I think what we're seeing here mixed in with the mourning is regret. Because David realizes that part of this whole mess could have been avoided 
if he had been the father that he was supposed to be. I think he's grieving his own failure here. I think he's regretting what could have been had he been a better father, had he disciplined his children, had he been real with them and and using his own failings and his stories to talk to Amnon and to Absalom and discipled them better and, and brought them up. I think he's not just mourning, but he's dealing with a lot of regret. His emotion is real and it's raw and he's hurting. But he's also still the king. And the men who risked their lives to fight for him should get to return home celebrating. They followed him out to battle. They were faithful. But instead, 2 Samuel 19.3 says that they stole into the city that day as men who steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. You know, when I read that, I I was filled with sadness because I thought about the the best modern-day example that I could think of as the Vietnam War veteran today who returned home and and wasn't treated fairly and appropriately by the people in our country. If that gives you some way of understanding how the Israelite men felt when they came back home and they felt ashamed, they weren't treated correctly. Because of David's grief, they felt like losers instead of victors. They had done this profound thing. They had been faithful. They had done what they were asked to do. And then they they felt ashamed as they came in. And then comes in Joab. Now, Joab is an interesting character, isn't he? We followed him and shook our heads and wondered about him. He has murdered. He has lied. He's treated other people dishonorably. When he thinks he is right, there is nothing this man won't do or say to get his way. But one thing that we haven't been able to question about Joab is his loyalty to David. And here in this passage, he cares enough about David to speak the cold, hard truth. He goes in and he preaches David a sermon. I want you to listen to these words that he speaks to David. And I'm going to read them like I think Joab said them. Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your lives and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now you go out there and you encourage your men. And I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. Now, he just spoke it like he saw it. And I don't think he uttered those words with calm and quiet. I think he was barking those words out. I think he was raising his voice. And I think he was invading David's space as he barked that out. I wonder, do you have a friend who loves you enough to speak truth to you? Maybe in a kinder way than Joab did with David. Are you a friend who loves someone enough to speak the truth to them? To maybe... Take on that mean mommy role when it might be necessary. I don't think in our 21st century that we do this well, and I don't think we do it often, because it's risky. The thing about it is it invites others to mess in our business if we cross the line and mess in theirs. You know, do we seek out the kind of friend that loves us enough to tell us what we should hear, or do we want to surround ourselves with friends in our time of crisis that are only going to be an echo chamber and tell us what we want or want to hear. Do we want to hear the truth, or do we want to hear what we want to hear? Galatians 6.1 says to restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. Well, there was nothing gentle about Joab, but he did what was necessary 
to speak truth to David and to jerk him back into reality. You know, David was blessed with many friends. And we look at all seven of those different people and those groups of people, and each of them showed up in different ways and blessed David in his time of need. Each of them was used to bless, encourage, and save David from disaster, even save him from himself in Joab's case. They all loved him in different ways, but each loved him well. And ladies, I think we should challenge ourselves to do the same. The woman of God is a friend who loves at all times. I wonder how do you define friendship? Is it someone that you go out with to get your nails done or you go out with to see a chick flick or shop together or out to lunch? Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Those are certainly okay things to do with a friend, nothing wrong with doing those fun things. But, But what else? Isn't there more substance to being a friend than just being there for the fun stuff? For Absalom, pretending to be a friend as he fawned over people who came to Jerusalem, was really just a way of using them for personal gain. And certainly there are people in our lives who who might feign friendship because they want something from us. He told them what they wanted to hear. And sometimes we surround ourselves with friends who might tell us just what we want to hear. Are we the kind of friend that just tells our our friend what they want to hear? Is that all we want from our friends? Don't tell me the truth. Just hug me and tell me I'm right that he's wrong or she's wrong or my boss is wrong. I hope the seven examples that we've looked at, of those groups of people that were there for David, I hope that each of their stories and their examples mess with us a little. And I hope that our definition of friend has been altered a little bit or maybe a lot. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times. And I think we've learned from some of these folks that loving always comes with some element of sacrifice, sometimes a very great sacrifice. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, that means dying to ourselves. Our plans, our agenda, what we want to do. It means being willing to be inconvenienced in order to love others well. If we want to be a real friend, a true biblical friend, a friend who loves at all times, then we need to be willing to die to ourselves. Would you ask God for a friend assignment this week? Now, if we were to take a survey on the street and ask 100 different people about their definition of friendship, we'd probably get 100 different answers. If we were to consult Merriam-Webster, we could get a dictionary definition of friendship. And regardless of what the courts say, we could go pull up that case from the Florida Supreme Court and have documentation there on how the court defines a friend. But regardless of what a survey or the dictionary or the court has to say about friendship, what defines a friend for us as women of God is timeless. It can't be legislated or, or dictated by a judge. It can't be voted on. Being a true friend means to show up, and it means to be there in all times. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we want to thank you for the friends that you've given to us, and we want to thank you for the opportunity to be a friend. God, I just pray today that our, that our thoughts about friendship have been messed with or altered just a little bit, and we just pray, Lord, that we would lean into learning from David's friends all those hundreds and hundreds of years ago and see that their true definition of friendship is timeless. 
Lord, would you bring an opportunity this week? We've sort of had the lecture, and now we want to invite the laboratory opportunity. We invite you to use us to pour out what you have poured in. And we just want to echo Paul's word to the Ephesians back as we pray your word back to you. You are the one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And so, Father, we pray that you would do more this week, that it would be your power that works within us, and then you would get all the glory in Christ Jesus forever and ever. In the name of Jesus, we do pray, God, and we love you and we thank you. Amen.